a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, Nathan Rome is with you. Today we are talking about foreign influence and national security. And for that, I have Sam Cooper on the show to talk about his new venture, the Bureau, and his continued efforts to educate people uh, on foreign influence. For those who don't know Sam, he is an award-winning Canadian investigative journalist who has presented his findings to law enforcement agencies, legal and financial professionals, and academics internationally. Cooper graduated with a degree in history, philosophy, and English from the University of Toronto and a certificate in journalism from Langara College. His first book, Willful Blindness, debuted as a number one bestseller on Amazon Canada. He is now the founder of the Bureau, which is an investigative journalism publication focusing on anti-corruption, counter-disinformation, whistleblowers, and sunlight. I suggest everybody go and read that stuff because it's some mind-blowing things being revealed on there. So you're doing a lot of good work. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm glad to talk to you again. (laughs) Yeah, we had you on uh, when I did a series on China at the beginning of this year, which was really good. We had some really good guests. So yeah, I was happy to get you to be a part of that. um, Maybe we'll start by just talking about the Bureau. And um, if you can tell us a a bit about the business, um, what exactly it is, um, and how things have been going. Things have been going well, and I mean a little bit about the name, uh, the bureau. The what I as soon as I got into journalism, I I kind of always thought I would like to be a bureau chief, and that that is because <laughs> you know when newspapers mattered, yeah, <laughs> they would have bureaus in the big cities, and uh, if you were running one of those, you know, you could be a reporter, but you're also still you know editing or coaching other reporters in your office. And I thought that that would be kind of a perfect situation for me, like a player coach. And so I wouldn't be a a chief editor who never does any reporting and spends all their time, you know, uh, talking to politicians and being the face of the paper. Mm. Of course, they're they're great journalists. But as I always thought, you know, they got away from what 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 made them good was just writing. So, yeah, I made myself a bureau chief by (laughs) by starting my company called the Bureau, and. of course, you know, uh, my reporting interests over the years have got more and more into investigation and intelligence. That's because I always spent so much time sitting in courts, following evidence, following, you know, just like juicy, meaningful, sensational trials. And I had wanted to be a lawyer before getting into journalism. So that was just natural. And so the Bureau, yeah, people might think the FBI is called the Bureau. There's a f- a great French intelligence show called The Bureau. So, yeah, if there's a little bit of that double meaning that that people get it, that I'm running a journalistic bureau, but I'm very much interested in, you know, some hardcore heavyweight intelligence and investigation, I don't mind if they have that idea too. Or that I have friends inside some of those bureaus. Yeah. Well, I think people might picture you as uh, the guy wearing the trench coat with the fedora on. <laughs> You're sitting at the bench reading the newspaper kind of, spying on people or picking up tips somewhere. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, like I've talked to other people that former CSIS or as you know, Calvin, former RCMP. And look, really, I had said I wanted to be a lawyer, but uh, a lawyer uses a lot of the fact finding and argumentative or logical skills of, I would say, a high level journalist. Yeah. You know, right. So Hemingway, uh, Orwell, Dostoevsky, whenever I read these people, it's like, yeah, they're novelists, but they're great thinkers and logical. And mm-hmm. so I try to do that. But but yeah, uh, intelligence assessment and analysis really is, you know, a lot of the logical work, again, of a high level investigative reporter. So if people have that view that they might see me like in a clandestine meeting, look, they're they're exactly correct. For some of my most explosive stories, I've had to use tradecraft. I mean, um, hopefully I could write this story one day, but look, I've met people in graveyards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have met people in hotel rooms that had to be sourced beforehand. I've had to do counterintelligence. I've been warned, uh, unfortunately, about, you know, uh, let's just say risks surrounding my work from other countries. So yes, uh, I like to write very readable and, you know, impactful stuff, but it's also, it does sometimes cross over into exciting worlds of uh, intelligence and enforcement. And, you know, you asked about the business. It's not just a one man show. I've got some great contributors so far, but It really is, you know, an extension of my almost 20 years of working for newspapers, the top media in Canada. I've now taken that independent, made my own brand uh, uh, through some supporters. I've built a great website, which I have in my back pocket, ready to fire up at any time. But actually, the bureau, the brand is on Substack now, which is, as you know, this great growing uh, sort of writer's network. And it's a, a subscription model. I ask people to subscribe and, and pay for the content. Yep. But for people to follow, I mean, you can be on that email list and probably read most of these stories, you know, for a day or two before the paywall goes up. And, you know, numbers, uh, I've been in business, it's like five months now, almost 6,000 uh, subscribers on my email list. And oh, okay, good. Yeah, and uh, almost you know, uh, 10% of those are paying. So it's on the way to sustainability, I would say, which is really exciting. I mean, some people say, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna disagree with them that I'm coming from the position of being one of the best uh, investigative writers in Canada from my uh, newspaper gigs. And I'm taking that independent and trying to show that you can do that, you know, build your own website and, and continue that great work. So that's the model. That's, that's the name. That's what I do. Well, and uh, yeah, I was going to kind of ask, like, what are the benefits of going solo? So is it, um, is it mostly just the freedom to kind of create and do as you like? Because I guess you don't, you know, if you want to put something out there, you don't have to answer it to anyone. But I also feel like, um, you know, you're going to run the, you uh, absorb all the liability, right? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I think about this every day. Again, I've been a reporter for uh, almost 20 years now. And so in my early days at the Vancouver province, I would be writing, you know, shockingly, you know, from one to three stories per day. It would not be unusual to see two uh, Sam Cooper bylines in the Mm. Vancouver province for anyone that was reading it in like 2010, 2011. And so that just teaches you to be, you know, a very, you know, uh, rigorous, factual, 
accurate writer. And you do have an editor at the end of the day that that's vetting that you've got a couple. And, and so, you know, you're going to learn from that process. Um, and I, I sort of progressed into being more of an investigative where people might only see uh, one story, you know, per month or one story every few weeks when I was at the Vancouver Sun and Global News. So what I've really done now is I've blended my early daily reporting, uh, you know, intensive being all over the news with the investigative hat where I became one of the best in Canada. And I've put those two together so that I can file one to two stories per week yeah, and uh, do it in a very rigorous way. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, in some cases, I would have someone else that has the potential to vet my copy, but very often it's just me. And so I take off my reporter. Oh, wow. I go ride my bike for a few hours or, you know, sleep on it, come back and edit, edit, edit. And, uh, and so, yeah, it is very often it's a one person show and I need to be the reporter, the editor, uh, the editorial lawyer, <laughs> the business <laughs> manager. But other people are doing this. It's not just me. I, I'm arguing and I'm showing that once you reach a high level in the journalistic profession, you can run your own website and compete with the biggest people out there and do it well. And you asked, what are the advantages? I mean... Obviously, sometimes I wish I would have, you know, an editor hired mm -hmm. to, to run things by, but I can get around that in a way by, you know, for my stories, sometimes I'll talk to someone like an expert that's not quoted or not part of the story and sort of run the story by them a bit and, and get some thinking. It's not editing, but it's getting, you know, that uh, sort of sober second voice sometimes. Yeah. And so... That, that's how I approach it. Uh, and the benefits, I've never been more productive in, uh, in my journalistic career in terms of I'm not doing three stories per day as they had me doing at the Vancouver province sometime, uh, sometimes when I was an intern there and, and earning my way onto being a, a full-time reporter. But I have that same energy and focus that I was doing when I was doing two to three stories a day put into that investigative funnel where I'm doing the best stories in Canada and doing them once or twice per week. That's awesome. Yeah. And I can see how, you know, you would take that uh, ability to do the daily grind, like three stories in a day, but now you can do that investigative side and have this different perspective on all the things and kind of combine those two. Uh, kind of, you're talking about like your own writing and stuff. Who do you follow or who would you recommend other people follow? for good content um well you have time to read anyone else's stuff it sounds like you're just I, you're busy doing your running your own business <laughs> no i do i mean of course like uh everyone knows you know uh robert fife uh, and, and stephen chase mm -hmm. not gonna say uh i'm gonna say i'm competing with them head to head i'm gonna say that robert fife you know some people in ottawa since i've been here i think he would kind of he would kind of have be viewed at a, as Canada's Bob Woodward. Okay. You know, Woodward being the Watergate report uh, reporter. And on a tangent, you know, while it's in my mind, I'm viewing this current Canadian election interference story as Canada's Watergate. Yeah. So, of course, if you don't know who uh, Robert Fife of the Globe and Mail is, uh, 
look him up and compare some of his stories to my stories as uh, they keep coming out. Um, I really want to say that, um, you know, your question just leads me to, of course, I read, you know, anything impactful that comes out. There was just being topical again, uh, The Intercept, I believe, you know, got the scoop that uh, the Nijar alleged assassination, <laughs> state assassination case in Canada, it was shown through an indictment in the United States that The Intercept got the jump on that, uh, you know, the the U.S. had a DEA agent buried in the 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 U.S. Indian threat network. And so mm-hmm. through U.S. law enforcement, we're finding out that Hey, maybe the Prime Minister of Canada was correct uh, that that there could have been Indian state involvement. So check out the Intercept to to read up on that story. And I don't know. I just uh, uh, I I myself sometimes I just had to get away from the internet and I go back to reading um, <laughs> Dostoevsky and Orwell. Yeah, like uh, and Hemingway. That those that's my triumvirate of uh, the best kind of journalistic type novelistic writers i've ever read yeah those are some big names i don't think anyone's going to disagree with you on that uh, well and with all this stuff so do you have a specific target audience in mind or is it is it just canadians and you're trying to educate canadians in general the uh the audience is very much i mean my my aspirational audience is international and i okay. i set out that happened this year uh within my first, I believe, second or third month, I was off to Taiwan for a week of reporting at the invitation with some support from their foreign ministry to report on how uh, Beijing <laughs> deeply threatens that uh, what I found to be, you know, a wonderful democratic nation. And so I filed four reports from Taiwan. Very obviously, I'm trying to reach an international audience. Uh, there is you know, of course, naturally, there's a, you know, an effort to make both Canadians understand more than probably we have in the past, how we fit into the world, and how we're being overwhelmed by the police of the world. That's a big focus of my, my reporting. I also write, I mean, I think unique to uh, Canadian journalism, I'm writing a lot of stories about Canada, but writing them in, in ways that Readers in Germany or Hong Kong or uh, South Carolina or Taiwan, uh, you know, across Europe will understand, you know, whether it's uh, sort of geographically or politically, uh, they'll be able to to engage with the story in a way that it's not just rote sort of, you know, I, if you get what I mean, I'm not writing yeah. GTA or, or this kind of thing. I'm writing so that other people can understand what's going on in Canada. And to end this answer, um, my my goal is to report a lot more strictly on uh, United States stories and not just about Canada. And I have a 10% subscriber base in the United States already. And for a lot of reasons, I want to grow that. And I could go through the reasons, but, <laughs> uh, you know, business-wise, legally-wise, just general interest wise i've always been interested in writing about the united states yeah well and when you said um, you said overwhelmed i thought that was a good way to put it uh, so a podcast i put out last week i talked with scott mcgregor and ivy lee mm-hmm. about his new book uh, the mosaic effect and when you read through that stuff and then it, it 
it reminds me a lot of the content that you put out. It is overwhelming. There is so much going on in Canada alone. But yeah, I mean, you could write equal amounts, if not more, about the U.S. and and Taiwan and other places in the world. And it is, I could see how like, a, you know, just your average Joe Blow day-to-day Canadian might look at some of this and go like, how the hell does this affect me or why is this relevant? But one of the things that's really nice about when you write your articles, you have so many links. I don't know how you did this. I was reading one last night. And you're linking back to like articles from 2017 and 2018. And I was like, how do you even remember you wrote that? And how do you find it again? Because I can barely keep files on my computer organized. But uh, yeah, no, I need, I mean, people, it, it's not hard to see the links. You just have to put a little bit of effort in, pay attention and start asking questions. And I think that's a big thing that, that the articles I've shown people or, uh, some of the books I've put in front of some of the guys I work with, I'm like, hey, read this, look at it in this context, and look at what we're doing here, even as police uh, on the front lines. There are so many connections. It's not hard to see when you start paying attention to those things. So, yeah, I thought overwhelmed is a, a good word to describe it. Yeah, and I wanted to, I wanted to jump on two things you said, like the 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 way that the way you can do links it's almost it's just a the new way of doing footnoting for stories now so when you have i mean i always, some people will just make a link and then expect people to read it and so they don't even know what the sentence is about so i don't do that but what was really cool in one of the recent stories i did was i realized that i was linking back to the very first story i ever wrote professionally pretty much, which was about the 2005 election in Vancouver. And there was a candidate called Sam Sullivan. And there was controversy around him at the time. But little did I know that, you know, there's a lot of indications that China was very interested in his campaign for Vancouver mayor back in 2005. And so, of course, you know, I've become an expert on election interference. Mm. And I was able to look, okay, here's almost a 20-year career, and I stumbled onto something in my very first reporting gig part-time, and now I can link it to what looks like uh, alleged election interference support of the current Vancouver mayor, who hasn't responded to me yet with my questions, (laughs) and I won't get into the story I'm talking about, but yeah. You just asked, you asked to hang out? (laughs) Well, uh, I asked some serious questions and I didn't get any answer. I won't take you to the story, but I guess my point is I've become a historian of my own work. And in that, that career arc, you know, I have sort of taken in the financial corruption of the city of Vancouver and how that led into what I'm saying is the, you know, Beijing's political corruption. And you mentioned Scott McGregor and Ivy, that's you know what they're talking to you about and i've talked to scott as well this is hybrid warfare so um when you talk about canadians that might say hey you know what the heck is that stuff mm-hmm. in the past we would have you know uh gone into a movie theater and seen clips of uh you know troops uh in, in trenches in europe and saying you know there's a war going on halfway around the world let's support our boys at home it's just a it's a dawning reality and more and more people are realizing that proxy war or hybrid warfare involves the political warfare of these foreign states that we're seeing in our elections. 
And so that's what Scott McGregor is telling you about. That's what my writing is about. Yeah. And it's shocking stuff. But again, you know, my mission is to make Canadians understand that uh, we've been living in, you know, a very naive sense of um, safety and, and distance from wars for too long. And the war really is going on in the election interference story, the Chinese police station story, the uh, assassination of Nijar story. The why was Nijar and his organized crime networks allowed to manifest so much in Vancouver's story? Yep. It just goes on. Well, and, you know, talking about things just kind of being allowed to manifest or even fester uh, within Canada. I was reading an article. Uh, I forget the guy's name. He's one of the contributors. But uh, he kind of ended it with, and I, I kept this line here, um, that Canadians kind of operate in this world where they have exaggerated fears of repeating past mistakes have been weaponized to forestall Canada's counteroffensive. Um, and this was, I thought of that, it, it kind of made me think of just talking with Ivy about the twin card strategy that she mentions where racism and victimhood are used against Canadians. So anytime somebody asks a question, it's like, oh, well, you know, you are doing this because you're racist. Um, used to oppress us. So those are used as like very strong, say, strategies to get people to back off and not ask questions or don't look at this, you know, this thing going on over here, just ignore it because I don't want to get labeled as whatever. So um, yeah, I thought that was a good point. Maybe we'll kind of move on with uh, like some of the focus of what you're writing about. A lot of it's largely on China. You've had some stuff now about different players in the game. Um, one thing, uh, maybe we'll start with Ortis. If you want to talk about Ortis, you did a lot of, uh, uh reporting on his trial. And I think there's, uh, some of the security experts I talked to, uh, some are like, okay, this is good. And, you know, this shows that Canada's laws do work and that we do have some strength here. Others have a very different opinion. Um, so I'm kind of wondering what's your take on the orders trial, were they actually focused on the proper things? Um, is there more to come out of that? Uh, you know, kind of where are you with, with that whole trial? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, uh, so for your listeners, not, a, not everyone followed it, but he, was, he got convicted on six counts by a jury of 12 which is good news. And the, the charges generally, you know, as my reporting showed, he was, uh, he was brazenly giving away the RCMP's operational plans and the five eyes. So we're mostly talking about investigative uh, plans from Australia and the DEA, uh, that United States agency that, has, that knows a lot about what's going on around the world just because mm -hmm. they're tied in. You know, they've got agents uh, collecting everything from organized crime and organized crime has become such an actor in, in international geopolitical stories. And that in a nutshell is what the Ortis, uh, that piece of the Ortis trial showed was he was giving away uh, Five Eyes plans to target Hezbollah global money launderers. Uh, specifically, a cell in Toronto was targeted by the RCMP as they bit off, you know, a little piece of this international investigation. And uh, Ortis was uh, was convicted for essentially telling 
the agents of a much larger international money laundering and terror financing network that uh, police were after them. Uh, police had all these uh, FinTrack money laundering reports. Uh, police knew what agents were placed where. And by doing that, Ortis both gave the, the larger international terror and organized crime networks visibility and the uh, the ability to evade the five yeah. eyes. And he endangered uh, agents. He specifically uh, endangered an, an RCMP undercover operator who targeted the other piece of this, which was a technology company in Vancouver, which was offering uncrackable blackberries to cartels, terror financers, all kinds of, you know, big organized crime and, you know, Iranian state-linked players. So that's the story. He's gone for that. But the bigger story, in a way, is all indications I've seen of this evidence that is highly protected and redacted for national security reasons is it's likely he was reaching out to many, many more people for multiple years, more than are, than are covered in his charges. And we could talk for days, but the other yeah. huge piece case that has come out is the second part that he didn't face trial for was he was preparing to offer uh, high-level signals intelligence documents from uh, the U.S., the National Security Agency, apparently to Chinese diplomats in Ottawa. And so there's, I'm going to report more on this story, but that points to, you know, much more sensitive much more compromising material that he collected and stole, processed so he could give it away, it looks like, to China. And that would give them probably, it could give them visibility on, you know, our code-breaking abilities or, you know, Five Eyes targeting of mm -hmm. Chinese spies uh, in, in, let's say, Toronto or Vancouver that Canada has partly learned about through, uh, you know, Five Eyes United States investigations. And so there, to the people that say this shows success, I mean, I, I was impressed that, okay, in a very sensitive and difficult case, Canada, that is a jury, a jury of uh, Mr. Ortis's peers convicted him. And there were people that, could, that would doubt that that could happen. So that's a win for Canada. But I wouldn't, you know, just be, have a, a wide grin on my face about that because he didn't face the potentially more serious compromise charges, and I believe there could be much more to uh, to what he was involved in. And beyond that, coming back to the uh, the money laundering piece, it demonstrated just the incredible amount of billions of dollars being laundered through Canadian banks with apparently little or no uh, consequences to this date. So it shows a lot of vulnerabilities that Canada uh, is you know, suffering from. Yeah. And I, I think you got a good piece there that national security uh, involves talking about organized crime, geopolitics, they're all tied in together. And we're seeing that more and more. Um, one of the things I found kind of strange was the Crown was asking for only 20 years for the things he was convicted on just because of the danger of what might be in his mind. Um, to me, it's like, well, I hope they're not giving him phone calls in jail then. Because <laughs> he's going to be calling somebody. But uh, 20 years, I mean, he could still come out and maybe they just think it'll be old info. No one will care. But I, I feel like uh, I feel like our sentencing side of things is not 
kind of up to snuff when it comes to borderline treason, right? Like where he wasn't charged with treason, but um, yeah, it just seems like it's not very strong punishments. Yeah, in the United States, you would never be coming out, right? But so one part of me, just because we're conditioned in Canada that there's no consequences for crime, you know, unless you murder someone or something, you know, extremely violent, it would be hard to go away for more than a few years. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, some people might look at this as almost more equivalent to white collar crime or, you know, high intellectual crimes. And that's something that you can get away with in Canada. So 20 years, I'd be surprised if he gets that much. But from the evidence I saw, it would be completely justified and completely, as you said, you know, the the knowledge that he has, there's no disputing. This person had the most visibility on Five Eyes Intelligence uh, in the RCMP. He, he knows what CSIS knows. He knows what the CSE knows. He knows what CIA knows at a very high level. So um, he demonstrated the ability to, to, to baldly lie to uh, apparently even his own family, you know, didn't know many aspects of his life. It's just, a, I think there's a, it's a sad story in a way, but uh, to your point on, I mean, I do think it'll be interesting in the sentence, sentencing coming up to hear the full arguments from the Crown, because I do believe that they will be uh, arguing it's extremely likely, if not proven, that he stored stuff in clouds, you know, encrypted yeah. clouds that weren't discovered on his devices. Who knows that that stuff could be already shared with people. We There's just so much we still don't know. But yes, just, just what he knows in his mind if he got out in five years and you know caught a flight to uh, to, <laughs> to to Moscow or Beijing, it would be big trouble. Well, and just kind of the inability of the court system to prosecute on that more sensitive side of things. And they said it was in national security interest to not proceed. It's like, well, there's got to be some process set up where, and I don't know is if there's a limitation because of Stinchcomb, but. There's got to be some sort of process to go after people who do this. It's like, it can't just say, well, it's so bad, we can't do anything with it. That seems kind of strange. I totally agree. You know, just in a, without getting into Stinchcomb or all kinds of legal scholar stuff, um, Jordan, all this stuff. I mean, um, I just said that this case seemed to show the restrictions of, of Canada's or the weaknesses of our system. And I agree, you know, too often I kind of hear people say, uh, you know, intelligence to evidence or disclosure. Mm-hmm. And for your many law enforcement, you know, listeners, they'll know exactly. And just more broadly for other listeners, like Canada has a big problem. As our uh, colleague Calvin Krusty demonstrated in the Cullen Commission, we can't get wiretaps on, on the Sinaloa cartel in Canada because just the you know the the strictures on 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 getting that kind of those uh, judicial approvals are so difficult in Canada and also the requirements to disclose so much to the defense of course we want fairness but this is getting in the way of our prosecutions of very damaging lethal networks and you know uh Ortis, again i mean we should be happy that this resulted in a conviction, but you're right. It just seems wrong that the more serious espionage charge, he just gets off scot-free because 
you know, he couldn't make, I guess, in our system, a fair legal defense without a certain amount of that that evidence uh, being disclosed to too many people in the judge's eyes. Well, and maybe this will come out in your reporting down the road, or maybe you know it now, but um, I find it hard to believe that, you know, he's just a one-man show. From what I understand, and from what I've read, he comes across as if, um, like, he almost took a little bit of pride in in doing these things. When I was reading some of the the quotes from the interview that the RCMP did when they arrested him in 2019, <laughs> and you can tell, like, there's a little bit there where you're like, uh, he seems like he's like, yeah, I was smart enough to do this and kind of get one over on some people. Yeah, um, very smug. But I find it interesting. Yeah, and it's it's like, well, is he really the only one involved in this? Like, there, he must have, there, there must be some naive leader at the top that is either not paying attention or complicit or there's something else. Um, do you think there's any, any more to that? Yeah, you've got the you've got the trained eye to to read that you know the tone and the evidence. And yes, I mean, first of all, just straight up in the case, uh, he he said that uh, I'll just we won't use names here, but this this Iranian money launderer that was cited in three point five billion three point five billion in oh. FinTrack of records. Right, that one blew my mind. In Toronto, one currency shop, Ortis said that uh, all these FinTrack records he shared with this guy wouldn't help him that much uh, because this guy already had full visibility on a Toronto Police Services wiretap room. The guy already had visibility, uh, apparently, on a you know FinTrack itself. That is, he had compromised FinTrack, not just had compromised Ortis. So part of this, you got to say, is Ortis just like, because he's the, the bandit, he's pointing the finger at other people. But I agree with you that, you know, what he raised uh, in, in his defense, he clearly felt that he could prove that there were other compromises in Canadian police. And I'll just tell you, you know, um, I'm aware on the Chinese uh interference side of what looks like some very serious stuff in the province of British Columbia mm-hmm. without anything to do that we know of with Cameron Ortis. That is, I'm talking about a one-off uh, police station type activity uh, compromise, it looks like, in an officer. And I just don't want to get into the name here, mm-hmm. but I this is like, this is like an open secret among intelligence and law enforcement that various Canadian forces have Chinese compromises. There are deep organized crime compromises. And with regards to the RCMP, how high does it go? I mean, this is sensitive stuff, but uh, you're right. It's certainly, it's certainly not just one and not just low level. I think we can be pretty confident in saying that. And that's scary. Yeah. And, you know, when talking to some of those national security types, you know, uh, they've asked those kind of questions where it's like, well, uh, you know, have we seen the RCMP leadership acknowledge any of this? I haven't. So I think they're just kind of hoping it goes away and nobody's going to ask any more questions. But um, it, one of the concerns as well is like Ortis was in charge of possibly the, the steering where the organization looks at, like who they look at when it comes to that organized crime. Huge so you know, whether that's 
Chinese, Iranians, Russians. Um, you know, it, it, I guess that's kind of like the further problem down the road. What exactly, what influence did he have? And has this made the RCMP at that level or in certain uh, parts of it ineffective? So what, what would you kind of say around that? Yeah, you know, I, I touched on that a little bit in my book, I think, in 2021. Mm -hmm. So I had enough confidence at that time to put out, you know, the theory that some people wondered. Uh, it was interesting that the RCMP seemed to take away its top-tier priority on Asian organized crime, you know, around the time when Ortis is very influential over the decision-making of former Commissioner Bob Paulson. Mm -hmm. And other people I had heard from with confidence said there's a concern at at, at senior levels in the RCMP that not only did Cameron Ortis capture, you know, all of this high-level Five Eyes uh, intelligence documentation that presents a risk, could it be possible that strategically he was hindering the RCMP's uh, enforcement and intelligence capacity? That is, the idea here is guy like sort of like a Manchurian candidate or a smarter version of one that was that was activated to uh disarm or you know to to hurt the capacity of the RCMP that is is it could it be a sabotage operation from a foreign state and i can say that where i heard that it's coming from very credible sources so i think people can be confident to say that the RCMP has considered was he a saboteur that was uh, directed by a foreign state to, to downgrade Canada's capacity? And, you know, while we're on that point, how beneficial would it be for uh, Iran, more importantly, China, to hurt Canada's standing within the five eyes? Yeah. You know, so you can, see, you can see all kinds of possibilities. You know, I can follow them logically in my mind, but what I can tell you is I've heard from inside the RCMP, two main concerns. Was he pointing, you know, the, the eye of the RCMP in directions that away from where other people, you know, so they could do their business? And did he sabotage, you know, Canada's premier enforcement agency? Yeah, well, and it also makes me kind of question whether the, maybe some people at the top or his peers are, how would I put it, like, not so naive. Maybe naive, I guess is the word, but like what I heard from the United States is that they they had the strong sense that that major bad things were happening up in Ottawa from I'd say about 2012, 2013. That far back. Major oh. I'll give you a little scoop here, like major Hezbollah targets, and not just one, I believe, but are getting are dropping off the radar. And that's indicating that they had a confidence that they can no longer trust pretty pretty high up in the RCMP. Something was going wrong. So if they were sensing that, why were we not sensing that? Right. That to me, that's what I what you're what you were suggesting, kind of that, or that's what I think is the problem. Yeah, I, you know what? Maybe what I was trying to get is like, were they too cocky, or is it like too ego driven that the people at the top are like, no, no, we're doing this correctly. Like, you know, maybe people outside of Ortis and a few of the bosses or, or media peers 
or like, hey, you need to be looking at these people. And they're like, no, we're doing it right. You know, don't kind of tell me what to do or I know what I'm doing. But sometimes when you get to those higher levels, people have been out of the game for so long that they're not really willing to let go of what they used to know or make change like a, a material change at that time. And they just kind of want to do what's comfortable and keep going down the same road. So, we talking about Bob Paulson here? Well, I don't know. I don't know that personally, but maybe you know something that it sounds like him. <laughs> um, look, uh, I, I tried to ask him some questions about the Ortis story, and quite clearly he wasn't happy with me. So if he wants to come on your show and do a rebuttal, that'll be good for everyone. <laughs> but I, I had heard from more than one that he, out of anyone, he was the one that was hoodwinked by Cameron Ortis. Uh, I've described Ortis as having like Rasputin-like influence over Paulson and others. Yeah. This was seen as such a genius that he gets too much freedom, too much latitude. So there's obviously, you know, a learning moment there or two. Mm -hmm. And you're speaking to that cockiness. Yeah, I've heard it. I mean, and you know, obviously I'm I'm an outsider on this. I'm only I'm I'm listening to people on the inside and there's theories, but what we can say when we when we just take away from this is it was admitted in the trial. You know, Ortis's boss said he feels he feels uh, a lot of probably even, you know, shame and and self-reflection at how did he let this guy get away with it. And it was uh, Ortis's former boss said this has caused irreparable harm to the RCMP. Okay. So I mean, there's, there's some contrition and there's an admission that you know some people miss some things and they feel bad about it. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, at least somebody's kind of taken some ownership of it in the end. Uh, just hopefully we get the right people out of there. <laughs> so um, one of the things we just as we kind of come up toward the end of our time. I want to ask just about some of the like sources without getting names or how you get it. It's just, does anyone tell you why they're doing the things they're doing or why they tell you stuff? And I bring this up because I had some thoughts around this on previous podcasts with some different guests. And I know just being a police officer and trying to push messages up through, you know, 10 levels in a chain of command. You really can get shut down sometimes. Um, like I was saying about management, sometimes it could be ego-driven ego or they just say like, no, we're not going to bother with that or don't waste my time. And you're like, this actually is a pretty big issue. You might want to pay attention. Um, I, see, I can see why people would get frustrated with going through the proper chains of command, not condoning it, but I can just see why. Like um, when you talk about all those reports like Sidewinder and, and other things where people are like, I've been telling you so for 10, 20 years now and nothing's changing. Now I'm going to start leaking things. So do, do people ever tell you what the motivation is behind that? Yeah. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I, I take it as my due diligence to, uh, mostly people will volunteer that. It's not like you have to interrogate them to find out why they're coming to you. Mm -hmm. Usually with first first one or two meetings they volunteer that and look we're talking about humans here i'm i'm not i'll tell you straight up people people that come to me iss are uh 
they've followed my reporting for a while and chosen me for a reason. One is uh, integrity of the reporting. And side by that is integrity of protecting them as a source. I make it my business not to choose bad sources with bad motives. I make it my business to choose people that have the same values as I do, same sort of uh, view of the world and view of Canada as a wonderful place that's lost its way. Talking about you know complacency and arrogance, there's a lot of that in Canada, and it's coming mm-hmm. out now. That um, let me put it this way: if people say I'm losing sleep because I know about something so bad that has been pushed up the chain so many times, people ask about you know corruption. Yeah, the 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 worst forms of corruption would be organized crime that is directed by a foreign state agency corrupting your politicians in Canada. And this is why I say this is the Watergate story. I'm now referring to this ongoing, my ongoing investigation of Chinese election interference. This is a state espionage and organized crime proxy story. Mm -hmm. Um, Right? And so when you realize that some of the worst and most dangerous people in the world are corrupting your government, and your government's not doing something about that, not only um, logically, you know, as a, as a professional, if, if you can't stop that after every effort, then that is what would take you to the line of, you know, do I go to, let's say, a responsible foreign government? Or maybe before I do that, do I go to a responsible reporter to inform Canadians about, you know, what's going on and how if we don't protect our country within a, a a year or two, let's say before the next federal election, this is what I'm talking about. Without without filling everything in too much, mm-hmm. people could not sleep. People want to protect this nation, and you know, people people don't believe the next election, if we go on this pace, will be free and fair. Right? It, it doesn't get more sort of. Uh, I would say. Reasons for going to a reporter can't be more well-grounded than that, in my view. And um, I don't know. I've been at it for 20 years now. <laughs> well, you know what? And it, and it reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Kim Bolin. So she was on the show long, long ago. I should probably get her back on here. Um, and just talking about like the partnerships and some of the, the issues within policing. And sometimes you see with police, uh, they think they can do it all, right? And I think there needs to be, and this was a point that Kim brought up, there needs to be more relationship between uh, police and maybe private sector or journalists, because some of those people, some of those, those organizations can do things that cops can't do, right? We're li- very limited by certain laws and, and uh, legislation as, you know, here are your powers, stay in your lane. These are the things you're allowed to do. But other people can go out and get that intelligence and point you in right directions or, you know, be an informant or a witness or whatever it might be at the end of the day. But I think law enforcement does need to open up to those potential relationships because if if we're going to fight this giant battle that's probably going to be taking place, um, uh, you know, everybody's got to kind of be on board. Everybody's got to be on some same page at some point. We can't all be fighting amongst each other while trying to take on this bigger geopolitical beast. So 
Yeah, my thoughts are like we both, if you're if you're from law enforcement, you know, of course you're taught don't trust reporters and you know, you have your 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 bailiwick and you know your responsibilities. And that's true to an extent. You know, we'll never we'll never, you know, be wearing the same hat. And us as journalists, part of our job is, you know, we have to be there to to hold government to account when when they go off the rails. Yeah. But yeah, I do think that there's a reasonable crossover, you know, and a reasonable, certainly there's got to be, you know, just not this kind of looking at, looking at each other as enemies, because there's a reasonable area of sharing in civil society between government and non-government. Yeah. And that's just, I do believe, you know, uh, and I think you and others, I think Calvin's one, Calvin Krusty, that would say, you know, their experience in other countries, Germany, or my experience now with Germany and Taiwan is like, it's a lot more natural to talk to people in in government and get good information Hmm. and feel like they're not, you know, the other side. Oh, really? This is a a well-ordered, good society. And yeah, we all have got our different roles. And, but we, we, what I want to say is I agree with where you're going with that. Of yeah. course, there's lines we need to watch, but I, I do agree. Yeah. Well, um, I think we got through everything we were looking to get through today. Um, we hang on for two seconds. I'll say bye offline, but thank you uh, for coming on the show again and uh, having this important discussion. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll do it again and again. <laughs>